The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Today, we are talking about Rigoletto. This is the next in our series of opera previews. And Rigoletto, if you don't know, I'm going to read a quote from you, actually, Carol. <laughs> Rigoletto was a powerful story of vengeance gone wrong, filled with morally questionable characters. But in the midst of this storm stands the sympathetic character of Gilda, Rigoletto's protected daughter. We'll come back to that story in a moment. But first, I want to talk about a little bit of the nuts and bolts of this production, Carol. It's new to Utah Opera. It's a production we've rented from New Orleans Opera, right? Absolutely. The costumes are repeats, however. We're using the beautiful uh, traditional costumes from Sue Mehmet Allred. That we a Utah love. legend, Sue Allred. A Utah legend, for sure. And she's done some beautiful work over the years. And so we'll see those traditional 15th century or, I guess, 16th century costumes back on the stage. What about the cast, though? There's some returning champions and some new people, right? You know, we have got an amazing cast. It's um, the three main characters of Rigoletto, the Duke of Mantua, and Gilda are all played by veterans who, of this role. So no one's debuting the role, but there were some new faces for us. So we have um, Scott Hendricks, who is a returning artist as the jester Rigoletto. He's done it all over Europe. In high much, demand right now, too. Exactly. Much yeah. of his singing is is taking place in, in, in Europe these days. Uh, he's actually a Texas native, and he was actually at Utah Opera 23 years ago in the year 2000 as the title role in Eugene Onegin of Tchaikovsky. Then we have another returning artist, Jasmine Habersham, who we last saw in uh, Cabin Boy clothes as the Cabin Boy Pip in Moby Dick. But she is coming back as the tragic heroine and innocent sheltered daughter, Gilda. Then as the Duke of Mantua, we have um, someone who I met this summer in Santa Fe. He was playing the role of Don Jose and Carmen, and he will be singing the Duke of Mantua for us. That is Matthew White a really uh, amazing young tenor. Uh, to round out the principals, we have Kevin Thompson as the assassin Spadafucile and Hannah Ludwig as the uh, his sister, who's a, a lady perhaps of questionable morals, uh, Maddalena. And then, of course, our resident artists are all featured in small roles. Some of our wonderful local singers, Chris Clayton and Daniel Tutau as well, and then the Utah Opera tenors and basses of the chorus. Helming this project are director Stephanie Havey and uh, conductor Joseph Culinary, who's the director of the Glimmerglass Festival, among his many accolades. Once again, Utah Opera puts forward an A-team to pull off a production. I just can't wait to see it all come together. Carol, we should talk a little bit about the source material. And, and talking about the source material, of course, begs the topic of censorship. You can't talk about Italian opera and not talk about censorship, can you? And we even can't talk about French theater and not talk about censorship because Very the censorship true. fingers um, go to the source material, the Victor Hugo play, Le Roi s'amuse, the king amuses himself. It's so much better in French than English. I know. The king <laughs> amuses himself. <laughs> I mean, it is true, though. The king is, uh, in this case, uh, he is amusing himself with the members of the court, whether they be, um, you know, uh, amorous conquests or just general machinations of the court. So he is um, enjoying watching people scramble for his favor. But so the French censors didn't like that play, right? They didn't yeah. like the commentary on classism and the royal 
set, did they? Yeah. So uh, the the play is actually about a historical king, King Francois the First. Um, and so it was problematic for the censorship because it was making a real pointed dig at an actual royal figure. And I think it's really it's interesting that we had opening night of the play in 1832, and then the second performance happened 50 years later. Mm-hmm. So the censors shut it down quickly. Well, Verdi loved it though, and but he was smart enough to change some things about it, right? So that the Italian censors who might have heard something about Ugo's play wouldn't recognize it at least right away, right? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say that he was clever enough to have done that at the beginning, but I think it was kind of a process, you know, of getting it through the censors. There is a little quote I I wrote down um, for a presentation I did yesterday where Verdi asked um, his librettist, Piave, to do something. I think he asked it in this way. He said something like, find, find someone with four legs and send them down the streets and help them find me a censor who will pass this material. That's a very <laughs> inadequate uh, re- remembering of that. But It, it was, works, uh, though. Yeah. So he was he knew that this would be an uphill battle. So uh, he tried to change it to, a, a, well, I'll say one of the challenges, too, with the censorship, Louis-Philippe was the king of France at the time of Verdi. Uh, writing this and also at the time of the play and so you know that was they had to take it and create uh as the central character um they found an historical aristocrat but of a duchy that no longer existed so they changed from the french royalty to the duke of mantua uh and that duchy at the time of the writing the libretto no longer existed in italian uh arist- aristocracy well, the character himself, Rigoletto, was based on a real person too, right? This is not just a fabrication either by Hugo or by Verdi. This was a real person. Yeah. Jeff, you have a great um, – I just want to put a plug in for Jeff. Uh, he often writes articles and things for our um, – features for our program books, among other things. He's an amazing writer. And, stop it. Stop no, it right now. No, I'm not going to stop. It's true. And he did the most clever um, – write up for the last Rigoletto program book back in 2012, which we're bringing back because it's so good. And um, talk about that. It's an interview with the historical character on who well, Rigoletto is based. It's it's a, it's an imaginary experiment. Um, yeah, let's I, just say I, Jeff does not have a bargain with the devil. He did not no. actually go back and do a seance and interview Tribolet. As much as I love Marvel movies, I am not a superhero who can transcend space and time. But I... I, when I was researching to write my article for Rigoletto back in 2012, I realized at that time, I, which I didn't know, I knew about the source material, the play, but I didn't know that Ugo had based his character on an actual person. And this person was a 15th, 16th century French jester. He went by the name of Triboulet. His name I th- was Nicolas Ferial, and I'm probably not doing the French justice there, but he was an actual person. He was a person who had an odd non-traditional uh, body shape, which led to his being seen as a comedic uh, personage by the royalty. And he lived his life in the halls and in the intrigues of the kings, queens, and dukes of his day. So a sympathetic character, an interesting character, and certainly somebody worthy of a play. In fact, Verdi himself said that this guy was worthy of Shakespeare. Yes. And we certainly, Jeff, you and I know how much Verdi loves Shakespeare. He didn't speak a word of English, but he loves those Shakespearean stories and set a number of them in uh, operas. 
I mean, it, it's a longstanding tradition to set Shakespeare to opera, but Verdi was particularly drawn to the bard, no doubt. So what I did in my article, just to finish this, and we're going to stop talking about me momentarily here, but what I did in my article was imagine being able to go back through time past Verdi, past Ugo, and actually interview Nicola himself. So I basically wrote up an a like I said, an imaginary experiment of if I had the chance to sit across the table for him, what I would ask him. I won't talk about how he answered those questions in quotes. People can read the program when they go see the production, but it was fun enough that I dusted it off for this production too, because I do think it speaks to how rich in this case, the source material really was. I mean, if people like Victor Hugo and um, Verdi, thought this character was worthy of Shakespeare, then certainly I could offer my pen as well. So it was it was fun to do, and I appreciate your support on it, Carol. No, no, it's um, people will look forward to seeing that. The jester idea is kind of fascinating. We could do a whole podcast where we talked about jesters. It was kind of a person who was part of the court and yet lived outside of the rules of the court in a strange sort of way. So they they were kind of free to say anything they could. Their um, uniqueness, their difference made them kind of free from the repercussions of these kind of incendiary comments that they might make. Well, I am going to break the promise I just made, and I'm going to read one thing that Trubelet says in my imaginary article, because I think it tells the story you're telling. When I asked him what he did, what his, what his job was, he said, quote, I spread their rumors for them. I delivered their insults when they feared to. I was the all-knowing shadow during their ridiculous jealousies. You don't trust that to the role of a fool. That is the function of a colleague. So Part of what's so interesting about him, not just as an actual person, but as an archetype, is that these people really did believe that they were part of the world they were participating in. But in the end, they never are. And that's what's at the root of Rigoletto the opera as well. The The hierarchy wins, right? Right. Well, let's. Um, this is a good segue actually into talking about some of the changes that Verdi made from uh, to, to appease the censors. And it kind of... Trust me, in my brain, there's a really clear connection. Uh, maybe we'll make it eventually through this podcast. So go on the journey with me, if you will. We always make eventual connections yeah, in our exactly. podcast, Carol. Sometimes they happen over lunch afterwards. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so Verdi actually wanted to title this opera the uh, La Maledizione, La Maledizione, which means literally the curse. And uh, this was one of the bit, first big issues with the censorship because it implied this kind of supernatural anti-religious thing. And so uh, it's actually ends up being subtitled that, but uh, that's when they changed the title to Rigoletto, the name of the primary character. And it actually, his name comes from a French word, rigolet, which means to laugh. Right. So they created this Italian style word out of a French word. So Triboulet becomes Rigoletto in Verdi's conception. It, the thing you also didn't mention, one of the biggest changes he made from the source material and from the human being that informed the source material is the addition of the daughter. There was right. no such person in the actual Nicola Ferriel's life. And I think if we did not have the daughter, the opera would have, it would have, we would have a hard time making a case for any sort of redeeming storyline in there absolutely he needs something to protect he needs a reason to go to do the terrible things he does because he has to have something kind of worthy of that evil something good worthy of that evil 
because really everyone's kind of a i mean the the duke of mantua is uh and unlike most tenor characters he's a really terrible human right. just with no regard for anybody yeah um for uh for no regard for the laws of man for the laws of god i mean he just sort of does what he wants to do i actually found out for the first time somehow i missed this in the libretto and i'm just going to confess and people can judge me but I somehow miss that the Duke is actually married. So in all of these amorous things, he's actually married. They reference the page comes in and says to the Duke, your wife is looking for you. The Duchess is looking for you. Hmm. And this is when he's actually um, in uh, offstage with Gilda. So and everyone tries to sort of mockingly cover for him. And I, somehow in my mind, I'm just going to confess my embarrassment when I sort of put two and two together. Finally, you know. It does help round out how bad he is. Yeah. So, uh, so the maledizione, the titular maledizione, is um, a curse that one of the courtiers pronounces. So, um, the duke has um, a history of having his way with uh, the women of the court, whether it be a daughter, a wife, or uh, an eligible, uh, an attached young woman, and he makes the the choice to despoil the daughter of Montarone. Monterone comes in and pronounces this curse. Uh, and this becomes sort of the thread throughout the opera. It's the first thing we hear in the prelude. It is cited and repeated by Rigoletto. It sometimes just happens in the orchestra. And so it's it's a very it's simple, it's just a middle C. Da-dun, 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 da-da. That's not middle C. I don't have perfect <laughs> pitch. Yeah. With a really ominous chord that's in the brass. And so this maledizione is a huge deal uh, throughout. I kind of diverged from talking about um, the censorship. Some of the other things that the censors required, uh, some of the things that happen with the Duke and Jilda now take place offstage. So we're not right. privy to anything that happens. We just are, are we see the ramifications and the, right. the repercussions to those things. Well, this, this curse Carol is important to the director of this particular production, right? She really views it as one of the, uh, binding principles for the entire drama, right? Yeah, I think, you know, I obviously referenced how it's such a part of the score. She obviously took that that clue from Verdi's work and Piave's work and has made it the thread that hovers over everyone. And then it is ultimately where people, when they do find some sort of redemption and forgiveness and closure, it's coming out of the specter of this curse. You know, Rigoletto yeah. has spent his life uh, with these saying these biting things and kind of at this point, the chickens come home to roost through this curse. They definitely do. And you mentioned the score a moment ago, and I do find the position of this piece in the grand arc of Italian opera really interesting. 1851 was the premiere date. We talked in our last episode about Bel Canto and what that means and kind of what it's what it what it encompassed in terms of the timeline of Italian opera. That was the 1830s when that kind of writing was on the wane. And it wasn't until the 1860s that anyone thought to name it Bel Canto. So in the middle of the thing itself and its identification was this moment where Verdi is beginning his middle to late phase and really moving the ball of Italian opera forward. Talk a little bit about how this piece fits into that big story of Italian opera generally. Yeah, you know, um, the earlier operas of Verdi are definitely in the line from directly from Donizetti. And if we wanted to get super musicolo musicological on it, we could talk about all the ramifications of that. We won't worry mm -hmm. about that. I think I've used ramifications and repercussions. Those are words I'm working, uh, workshopping today. Um, <laughs> so far, so good. So, yeah, yeah, they're going well. Um, 
So Rigoletto is kind of what musicologists identify as the first opera of Verdi's quote unquote middle period. Yeah. And this is where he really started to experiment with structure. This is what leads to Traviata and such. Uh, so Belcanto arias typically had this structure, this double aria structure where they had a slow lyrical section. Then there was a piece of action that kind of changed the direction of the scene. And then there was a fast thing, whether it be fast and joyful or fast and angry, but it was always a slow fast with a clear melodic impulse in both of those moments. And the orchestra was kind of relegated to an accompanimental place. Donizetti started to build that a little bit more, but that was kind of the general thing. What's fascinating about the opera, the aria structures in Rigoletto is how he breaks from that. Rigoletto's first aria, if you want to call it that, is actually a monologue where he talks about um, he's just met the the uh, assassin Spadafucile. And Spadafucile basically kind of says, you look like a man who could use an assassin. <laughs> and so... After that, after that duet, which is again not an obvious duet, it's two low voices. It's more of a conversation than a melodic duet where there's harmony, and you know the typical harmony in thirds and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, the this aria is a monologue on comparing the assassin to Rigoletto himself. The assassin uses a weapon. My weapon is my tongue. So he says, we're very similar, he and I. And so that's the first hint that we're not going to have a normal opera. We've just, the, the opening scene is very much like your basic sort of um, standard Italian party scene. I mean, it's got an edge to it because of the things that go on in this court. But, and then the curse obviously puts a damper on the party, but not for long. But then we start to see these different ideas about arias. Gilda's first aria is just it's a beautiful aria it's a melodic aria that people recognize but it's not in this double aria structure and then when rigoletto finally has his big outburst to the court the structure is actually reversed the opening part is the ragey energetic part where he's uh, accusing the court of their of merciless immoral behavior with these very agitated strings and then the second half is the lyrical section with the beautiful solo cello and solo english horn where he implores them to be merciful with his daughter so verity's taking the old structures and um turning them on their heads what's happening with the orchestra at this point in verity because i i, I you know you mentioned the the motif of the curse before i i think we're moving beyond verity's orchestra as a great big guitar which was a quote we yeah. referenced <laughs> in the last show we're moving beyond that now right no, the 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 orchestra is definitely taking part in the the drama. I mean, even I just referenced this um, solo cello and and uh, English right. horn. They participate in Rigoletto's plea, and their characters as much they they add to that moment as much as anything that Rigoletto is saying. And then this idea that the curse hangs throughout is very very prevalent and happens in these kind of low brass, uh, and. Even that uh, duet that I referenced between Spadafucile and um, Rigoletto is accompanied by a melody. The melody is actually only in the orchestra, and then there's little interjections. And the melody is in uh, the the double bass and the cello in octaves. So mm -hmm. it has a very dark and ominous sound. One of the biggest th moments in this opera, too, is the famous quartet in the third act. And this is... Um, it's a quartet, but it's actually more of a double duet. And... I know that uh, I, re I read at one point that Hugo was um, accused Verdi almost of plagiarism for stealing his story and making an opera about it. 
we know that copyrights were not the same now that they are. Now Verdi would have had to pay Hugo for rights to use his story and all of that. That didn't happen in the 19th century. But uh, Hugo did appreciate how Verdi crafted this quartet. So what we have is we have uh, Gilda is deeply in love with um, and irrevocably in love with the Duke at this point. None of us who are watching can figure out why, because we've not seen anything redeeming about the Duke except that right. he sings well. He hardly deserves her. But, right. But for whatever reason, it's the first man that Jilda's met, I think, really frankly, because she's only been, she's seen her nurse, she's gone to church, and she's seen her dad. So uh, they have this quartet, and uh, the Duke and Madalena are in the tavern, and Madalena and the Duke are flirting, and probably leading to something more serious than flirting. And Rigoletto and Gilda are outside the street of the tavern, um, peering in through the window. In fact, there's a really funny movie with Pavarotti, and it really is so awkwardly staged. You can find it on YouTube where they're just like staring through the window and no one seems to notice them. So the Duke and Madalena are having a flirtation that and each of them has a very different thought process going on. The Duke is seducing with a beautiful melody. Uh, Madalena is rebuffing him with laughter. And so all of her line is um, staccato and bouncy. Then Gilda is watching this happen from outside and sobbing. So her her melodic line is full of these da-da, 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 da And the Rigoletto is trying to be strong for her and help her get through this. And so he's just a very um, solid baseline to this moment. And it's really, really quite astounding and, and so creative. It's not... Anything like we've heard before, I think, at that point. I think it's funny that either Wagner or Wagner's people made that dismissive comment about Verdi's orchestrational techniques. And he's doing things here in 1851 that, frankly, don't just predict Wagner. They make Wagner possible. There's a, yes. there's a continuum. You can't you, you can't be dismissive of these guys' careers because they're innovators. They're constantly changing the rules as they go. Yeah, and where I can't necessarily quote the quartet as a major part of Verdi's great orchestral writing directly after that, there's an amazing storm scene mm -hmm. that, and that's one of the greatest dramatic scenes I know of. It's this amazing storm that's happening. And yet, and, and while this storm is happening outside, we have Spadafucile and Madalena plotting how they're going to assassinate the Duke because Rigoletto has hired them. And then Madalena is pleading for the Duke's life because she kind of has an affection for him. And there's just so much drama that haps, happens within what's happening with the characters that is echoed by this storm that really appears, grows, goes crazy, and then fades away. It's a really amazing dramatic scene. And that's that wouldn't have happened necessarily. You know, the storms at Rossini were little set pieces for the orchestra in a way. Right. They weren't part of the drama. You mentioned Pavarotti and it got me thinking about one of the things people depend on Verdi for and it's shower tunes, uh, really singable tunes. Are there any of those in Rigoletto? Remind people how much they already know this music. Well, everyone I think knows at least one tune and this is La Donne Mobile, which yep. again, it's a, one of the great tenor arias and he's just being awful. La Donne Mobile is saying women are flick fickle, blown about by the wind like a feather, but the tune is what we're all going to know. Dun 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 bum ba dum bum bum ba dum ba dum. You've all heard it. Incredibly famous. And funnily enough, if that's a phrase that I can use, um, Verdi forbade the original tenor from even from practicing that aria outside of the opera house because he knew that people would love it and he didn't want it to be copied ahead of time. 
oh, it would have been used in folk settings ad nauseum if people heard it. Yeah. It's so I mean, flexible. In fact, um, my colleague shared a, a story that um, because it was premiered in La Fenice in Venice, mainly he didn't want the gondoliers to start singing it. Oh, of course. Because yeah. they would have picked up the tune, and I'm sure they did. People left the opera's premiere singing it. Well, anyone who's been to Venice now knows that they do. <laughs> that that um, prohibition has been lifted because they sing this song. You hear it day and night in the canals yes, of Venice these for days. for sure. Between that and O Sole Mio. Absolutely. So, Carol, I always put you on the spot about, you know, sort of big picture takeaways. And I mentioned, you know, several minutes ago how this tragic story sort of confirms how the the little guy hardly ever wins against royalty, against important people. And certainly Rigoletto gets his comeuppance. He's not able to game the system as well as he thinks. What are some other big picture kind of moral, social takeaways from this piece and this production that you want people to recall? Well, uh, first of all, yeah, I want to say it's really fascinating that of the cursing, the cursing went to Rigoletto because Rigoletto mocked Monterone about his daughter's situation. And no one ever is really mad at the Duke, which I find kind of fascinating. Yeah. But uh, so we can't really say that Duke, the Duke has a moral change in his life. He doesn't um, learn a lesson. He's unchanged by this. He's really actually just a, a vehicle for um, the, the drama, but I think what I've seen being worked on in the, in the in the staging process, and that I hear very much in the music, is how um, Gilda and Rigoletto uh, they've talked about sort of a cycle of abuse. Not that Rigoletto is physically abusive to Gilda, but Rigoletto has been abused, then Gilda has been protected, which is kind of a weird sort of you could call it a form of abuse, you know, not allowed to have a normal life. And um, they're able to, in their final scene together, kind of rece receive some forgiveness and closure. And maybe the takeaway is that um, Rigoletto is, survives this event, and I'm sure he's forever changed. And maybe he's not, I mean, I don't know what kind of life he finds for himself. People who were, you know, um, not traditional in appearance or in behavior weren't necessarily welcomed in 16th century Italy or France. Um, but maybe he's able to find a way to carry forward in a different manner with having had this blessing of forgiveness from his young daughter. He finds a little grace at the end, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Well, Carol, this production is going on right now. You're involved every day as we record uh, at the Utah Opera. But for people who are going to go see this, there's a way to prepare yourself for the experience. Go to utahopera.org and when you see Rigoletto, hit view details and you'll see on the left side there all sorts of links to articles and online learning opportunities, in this case, written by Dr. Paul Dorgan of the University of Utah. There's a lot of great information there. You can find things that Carol and I brought up and things we didn't even think to. It's really a great resource. So, Carol, as we record, what are the performance dates? When can people see Rigoletto at Utah Opera? So we'll open uh, Saturday, March 11th at 7.30 p.m. And then we have performances Monday and Wednesday, the 13th and 15th at 7. Then we return to 7.30 for Friday, the 17th. Nothing like celebrating St. Patrick's Day with an Italian opera about a French story. And then we'll conclude our run uh, on the 19th, Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. Of course, you can follow Utah Opera on Instagram or Facebook. We want to make sure that when you come to the opera, you're not coming without information. Should you desire information, we have it for you. Many different sources. 
Uh, so glad that you were able to join us for this preview. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us to get new listeners. Be sure to visit usuo.org or utahopera.org for information about upcoming performances. We hope to see you soon at the Capitol Theater or Bavanaugh Hall for a live performance. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for being with us. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.